New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, storyteller and scholar of mythology, Michael Mead, writes, When life has become severely polarized, when people become alienated and isolated from each other, it is soul that has gone missing. He goes on to say, This is not only true at an individual level, but also at the level of community and culture. Soul is the primordial and primary source of meaningful change in true transformation. This time of collective upheaval and cultural loss is also the time of a struggle for the presence of the human soul and a battle for the soul of the world. These are strong yet encouraging words today, and we'll be exploring the unique inner territories of the heart and soul and how the realm of imagination and dreams can renew us as well as help sustain life on our precious planet. Michael Mead is a renowned storyteller, author, scholar of mythology, and student of ritual in traditional cultures. He has scoured the world to bring us meaningful folk tales that tap into ancestral sources of wisdom and acts as a guide to connect them to the stories we are living today. Mead is the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation. He also distributes regular podcasts, and his many books include The Genius Myth, Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal in Times of Loss, Fate and Destiny, The Two Agreements of the Soul, and Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. Join us for the next hour as we explore the awakening of soul in critical times with our guest, Michael Mead. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Michael, welcome. Good to be back with you, Justine. It's just grand to sit across from you once more. I always enjoy it. You you bring some folktale or some myth, and it just like opens up the perspective, a larger view. I, I just I'm I'm always excited to be with you. And and it really is about the work of new dimensions. That's what we try to do here. Mm-hmm. So um let's talk about one of the myths that you really delve into in the very early part of the book. It's the the world weary man. And it's an older myth. It goes back, what, 4,500, four, more than 4,000 years ago. Yeah. But in maybe the earliest myth that has ever been recorded, I'm not sure. 
but it also applies to this time. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So the book begins uh, quoting uh, from a, a papyrus manuscript at the very beginning of making paper. Paper comes from papyrus. And someone found a manuscript where an Egyptian poet scribe, appears to be a man, is saying things like, why should I continue to live when culture is falling apart, brother is turning against brother, greedy people rule everywhere, no one stops the violence in the culture, why should I even bother to live? And I'll read it to audiences without telling them what it is, and it sounds like the PBS report on the latest news, <laughs> yeah, okay. and it's like we're going through the same thing. Um, and then in the manuscript, his soul answers him what they call the basal, which would be like the unique soul of the person, answers and says, because he says he's thinking of taking his own life. And so the basal says, don't do that. Instead, go back to the origin of your life and connect with the potential at the origin of your life and then live to the end. And then you and I will go to the other world together. And so I go on to explain that the reason I'm using that story, two reasons. One, it sounds like the same condition we're in now, but secondarily, his soul answers him. The culture at the time was very aware of the inner soul, and a modern person might not even know they have a soul, and collectively there seems to be so much lack of soul that we're in the same con condition in a way without the immediacy of knowing that the soul has answers that we need so that we're in a worse off condition than the 45-year-old world-weary man, and all of us get world-weary these days. Exactly. And so you're talking about these days, we're talking about we're in a materialistic culture. We, we Everything is based on logic, rationality. We count the beans, so to speak. And so there is, as you posit, there is a a lack of that interior, the acknowledgement of the interior in what you call the soul. Please help us understand what you mean by soul. So, you know, it's something you can describe but can't define. The nature of it is elusive. That's part of the nature of it. But an aspect of soul is depth. It's a key aspect. So, the old distinction is spirit's connected to fire and air, and it rises. Soul is connected to water and earth, and it descends. So soul is the descending, deepening part. If we think about the world tree, it's the roots going further down as opposed to up towards the heavens. And so another distinction is whereas spirit tends to go towards one spirit, the universal oneness. Soul goes towards diversity and multiplicity like the roots of a forest or the secretly connected life of trees or something. And so soul is the connective tissue of life. In nature, it's the connective tissue called the soul of the world. And in culture, it's the soul of the individual and the soul of the community. So I'm saying when people turn against each other the way they are now, people have always opposed each other. But now if you're the opposition, you're evil. It's gone to a really big extreme and the middle is empty, not just the middle of politics, the middle where the imagination should be. 
So it's a kind of an overall loss of soul is what I'm saying on the individual level and on the cultural level. And at the same time, you can't completely lose the soul. So we're in the moment of choice and change where just as everything falls apart, the soul tries to come back in with its endless capacity for vertical imagination. So you're saying that soul or this energetic that is deeply rooted in in culture and in nature and in ourselves is speaking to us more than ever if we have ears to hear. Is that what you're saying? Yes. The world-weary man could hear the soul speaking. It's a brilliant thing. And um, by the way, there's no end to the manuscript. It's torn. So there's no conclusion. What did he do? Which is, you know, charming mythologically. And I consider him the first Hamlet. And and the issue isn't to be or not to be. I don't think that's the exact question. The issue is to be oneself or not to be. That it's not a matter of existing and persisting. It's a matter of awakening to the destination that's written into the soul. And then I'm saying the problems are so diverse right now. They're so intractable. They're so enormous. Like with climate change, probably the biggest crisis that we're in, if people could see, the, you know, the information's there, a lot of people in denial. Next level, humanitarian crisis with all the refugees, with all the misogyny coming back, the racism, the issues at the border, separation of children from families, that's all humanitarian crisis. And then the next crisis down, I think, is the crisis of truth and meaning. And if we don't solve the crisis of truth and meaning, we won't be effective working on the humanitarian crisis or on the crisis of climate change. So you're saying that that's the fundamental that we need to address, the purpose and meaning and finding that in our own lives. And then delivering it back to the culture which has lost the sense of meaning in life. And then look at the argument in the culture about who's telling the truth and where is the truth. And so in the book, I move towards the end of the book where I'm talking about living in truth, not just having one's truth, but living in truth. Like when someone stands up against all the power structures and just simply tells the truth of their own soul. Now, people say, well, you can't prove it. There's no evidence, but that's only one view is from the practical side, from the story side, the narrative mind, or mythological, the truth of one's soul has its own evidence. So, Michael, for those who are standing up, especially publicly, telling their truth, and even though there's backlash, let's say, on it, that's possibly, in, in the way you look at it, it's not a throwaway. There still is reason for it, even with the backlash, and it is changing culture in some way. It's not the end of something because it didn't fully work out. It's the beginning of something. It's, I, call, I think it's initiatory, that we're in a double initiation. One has always been the question of the human soul. Can I awaken to what my life is really about, and can I live that honestly And can I deliver whatever gifts I've been given in order to contribute, say, in a Dharma sense to the remaking of the world? And a Dharma meaning a Buddhist term, 
which is— Meaning serving something beyond oneself because the soul moves beyond oneself. The soul is uniquely oneself, but the soul is connected to everyone else. Community is a collection of souls. The soul is secretly connected to nature. When a person learns their own nature, that's their connection to great nature. So you have to keep thinking of soul as that tree, the root system of the tree. If we're the tree— the roots spread out, as you said earlier. So just keep thinking, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm really connected on some deep level. Yes, and depth is a, is a quality of the soul. And any meaningful project, personal or collective, needs depth to be meaningful. And then I'm saying the argument of the crisis of truth and meaning, because you have people saying we're in the post-truth world. You have people in power. Alternative posi- truth world. <laughs> people in positions of power say truth is not truth. Well, the soul goes, no, wait a minute. I know what truth is. Truth is a living thing. It's not an argument about evidence. That's only one simple layer of it. It's actually the living evidence of life having meaning and direction. And so the soul, I'm going back to the old sense that the soul has its own genius. The calling that everybody wants to have is to be called to something. The calling is calling to the genius so that it could become conscious. And then once a person has the calling, they're headed for a destination, and the bigger word of that is destiny. And so sometimes a person's destiny is to stand up in public, bear their soul, and tell the truth, the lived truth. And if it happens enough, people will begin to recognize it and hear it again and understand that that's the soul speaking truth, not just to power, but to confusion and chaos. And humans are the source of that. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Michael Mead. He is a storyteller, a a person, an interpreter of myths, and brings us wonderful myths in our lives to awaken soul. And his newest book is Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. And if you want to know more about his work and his podcasts and other things, his, his appearances, you can go to the website mosaicvoices.org, O-R-G, mosaicvoices.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Michael Mead. He is a storyteller and scholar of mythology and the author of Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. And Michael, in the book, one of the myths that you share has to do with the repairing uh, and the golden repair. 
And this just takes me to that that's your own personal story that you share so deeply in this book, your own journey into the descent yeah. to, to hear your own soul's calling. It was a harrowing experience, a military um, prison. So mm. if you could share with our listeners a bit of that story that helps us to know your journey. Well, I was trying to get give the reader a sense of where I'm coming from and why I'm saying these things. And, and also give a sense of how the soul acts in a person's life in surprising ways. And um, as anyone who has had traumatic experience knows, it's very hard to go back into that. And, uh, and I can say that, that those experiences, indelible markers in the soul, and even though it's painful, those experiences live inside and can be tapped into. So I'm always going back to learn more from my own experience. So in this case, what actually happened was one day I'd been drafted to go to Vietnam, and I had sent a letter back saying, well, it's not uh, a declared war, and I don't think it's a just war, so I don't think I'll come. Let me know if you have another war. And uh, <laughs> and that somehow awaked up the uh, FBI who came and said, you either go to the Army or you go to jail. And I didn't know anyone else who was opposed to the war. Uh, no one in my neighborhood was. They were all in favor. So it's this kind of strange, unique, singular thing I was doing. And so I went in because I didn't want to go to jail, I guess, because I wasn't sure. And then So you I, signed up. You signed up for the military. Well, I, I was drafted. You were drafted, right. No, I, but, I never but, would have signed up. You didn't actually sign up, but, but, you, but you actually you ended up. You do sign a paper, yeah, yeah. right. So then I was, we were being trained to go to Vietnam. And, and, uh, and, and so in this one... Meeting, there's a captain, I think it was, giving everybody a talk on how you will sacrifice your life for the country. And that means if there's a hill and we want to take that hill and they're shooting down and you're ordered to go, you go. Whether you die or not, you follow that order. And then the second part is when we say you shoot someone or shoot in some way, then you do it. So, and I said, wait a minute, that means that I die on command and I kill on command. I raised my hand from the bleacher seats and said, uh, I can't do that. And they said, what do you mean, soldier? And I said, I can't kill on demand that I'm not even sure I can die on demand. And and then the the officer said, if if I tell you to die, you will. And I said, I will not. He said, then I will shoot you myself. And at that point, I started to say something else, and I got dragged out of there. Long story short, many court-martials finally uh, sentenced to the longest term they could give me in the military prison. Get into the military prison. It turns out they give you similar orders to that. And I said, you know, didn't you get the memo? I'm not, I'm not doing the orders. And they said, okay, that means solitary confinement. And so then I'm in this solitary cell for months and somewhere in the course of that, I realized this wasn't going to go well. And I started fasting in my own terms against what I thought was uh, oppression or misuse of authority. Well, I think uh, what, what I found fascinating when you, when you talk about the fasting part, you had some realization that whatever was happening, they still looked at you as being a soldier, you were still dressed like a soldier. You were yeah. eating their meals yeah. that they were giving you like a soldier. Exactly. So you had some insight. You it, know, I felt like 
I was telling them, I'm sorry, this was my fault. I shouldn't have come in. I'll go home now. I was, you know, and it wasn't working. And I realized, oh, I look like a soldier to them. And they're feeding me, and I'm accepting it, so it looks like I'm involved. So I realized I have to get rid of the uniform, and I have to stop eating. It seems to me like almost a, a philosophical misunderstanding that that they didn't understand that I really meant it. I was finished. This was an error. I, I shouldn't be in this situation. And then an amazing thing happened. Then I'm the only person in, in the whole military base in the entire area who's in the military but not of the military. I mean, you threw your clothes out of the cell. Yeah, yeah. You refused I the threw meals. the bedding out. The bedding out. I'm living all by myself in there. And then what started to happen was officers, starting with lieutenants, but right up the ranks, would come in the evening. And, and the guard would open the cell, and they'd step in and say, they'd give me an order. And I'd say, you know, I'm not doing orders. Don't waste your breath. And then they'd go, okay, but um, maybe we could talk a little bit. And so then they would start to tell me what was wrong in their life and what the pain they were living. And I became the confessor of the very people that were locking me up, I think because I was the only one around who was there but not part of what was going on. And also, I wouldn't get a haircut and I was starting to grow a beard and I had red hair. I think I looked a little like Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and so in, in writing about it, I realized what happened is the archetype had shifted for me. They saw it shift too. And I was not a soldier now. Now I was like the confessor. The archetype had shifted from, uh, you know, the war archetype to the healing archetype. And so I would hear confessions and I would give them advice and, and all kinds of stuff. And for me, it was really a radical experience and hard to understand. It took me years and years afterwards to realize, you know, what, what had happened. And I still unpack it, which t one reason I offer the story so people realize, even if they've had a very negative life experience, there is knowledge inside there that is very specific to them. Every time we survive, we survive partly because our own genius wakes up. And and, and I just followed my instincts and, and then wound up getting out of there eventually and then found out it's an old, my, my ancestors are Irish. It's an old Irish thing to fast against authority. And that was amazing to me when I found out after I got out that I'd actually tapped into some deep ancestral memory of what you do, of one of the things you can do when you're being oppressed by a power and dominance, which is how I experienced it. And then I found out that the Irish called that ritual fasting. The Gaelic word is troskad. And then Gandhi read about uh, an occasion of that in Ireland, and that reminded him that that India had an ancient ritual fasting practice, and then he incorporated that into part of his uh, work, uh, Satyagraha, the force of truth, very similar to the Irish idea, very similar to the idea of speaking truth to power, but this goes further, sacrificing oneself to not be subject to power. And you almost died. I Several mean, you, times. You, you got down to way under 100 pounds. I'm just wondering, Michael, what it was, what was that spark that even though you didn't understand fully, like yeah. you like looking back on it now, you know, decades later, you can see more of the full story. Yeah. But at the time... Making those choices, how how did you possibly go against your very nature and not 
eating, when your body is crying out for food, how did you how did you possibly do that? I think it's the deeper nature of the soul. What happened was in that one session where, where they finally said what the deal was. If we tell you to kill, you kill. If we tell you to die, you die. No one had said so clearly what the deal was. Something in me, an ancient thing, the soul in everybody is ancient, and it has deep resources. It has deep philosophies and deep memories. And something in me said, um, there's a fate worse than death, and that fate is to die uh, not as oneself. This goes right back to the Egyptian scribe where the soul is saying to him, don't die now, live till the end because there's a fate worse than death, which means to not live one's own life. And I had gotten down to um, this deeper level of myself where I honestly couldn't do that. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have the capacity to, to kill or to harm someone if someone's attacking some innocent, unprotected person or animal, I'm stepping in. Right. But to to actually say that I'm going to agree to do that kind of thing, I instinctively knew it was damaging to my own soul, and I just simply said I can't do that. One of the things that you talk about, too, like here you are, solitary confinement. You're really cut off. But there's something, there's a companion you had with you, a numinous companion and that was going back to your own childhood when you were 13 years old. You got that book on mythology. <laughs> so you had time to kind of do what? Oh, how did that inform you? Well, solitary confinement is quite troubling because now— It can be—it can cause schizophrenia. I mean, yeah, it, it really yeah. can lead to dire, dire situations. Yeah. You either connect more deeply to yourself or you begin to dissociate. Yes. And you can do both. And so I wound up fasting for over two months. They would, they would force feed me once in a while, which was turned out to be really helpful in the long run. But I didn't think I was going to live through this anyway, so I was pretty determined where I was going. And so then um, there's no one, by definition, there's no one there but me, except there were some beings there. And, and because I had studied myth, the, these old stories were coming back, and the characters from the myth were showing up in the cell. And so one day I realized, okay, I'm either losing my mind or I'm finding my mind. And I thought, I, I'm going to accept the presence of these uh, mythological characters because otherwise I really am alone. And so it's a little bit like the, the Basel speaking, the Egyptian scribe. He decides to listen. I decided to listen to, you know, Odysseus and, and Athena and uh, the characters from the myth. Um, and then I realized, oh, this is my soul. My soul, my life turns out to be about mythology. It, it appeared in the absolute worst moment. And that allows me to say from experience and hope that it can be meaningful for other people, under great duress, the deep resources of the soul wake up personally and I think collectively. And that's why I call the book Awakening the Soul, because under pressure— Things awaken that we didn't know were there. And that's what can happen in nature, too. But it happens in human nature. So that's where the repair comes in, the golden yeah. repair. It's just like you, you don't negate all that trauma and all of that. But it's repaired in, in a golden way. So that goes to this beautiful thing called kinchugi, which is a Japanese term for um, repairing something using gold. And so they have this, you know, brilliant ancient idea 
that when something like a, a valuable ceramic bowl, which they make many of, when it cracks, you don't throw the bowl away, go down, get another one, which might be the modern approach, yeah. I don't know. What they do is they take resin and gold and they fill the crack with gold so that old, valuable antiques become more valuable, not just because the gold is in them, but because now gold is shining through the cracks of a broken thing. And so to me, I took that as an image of the world, that we're experiencing an increasing um, fracturing of the world with the divides between political parties, the divides even between genders, the divides between poor people, rich people, the multiple cracks in the world. And then I'm suggesting that what we need to do is find our own gifts and our own ways to work meaningfully in the world. And we could consider that pouring our gold into the cracks of the world. I'm here with Michael Mead. He is the author of Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with storyteller and scholar of mythology, Michael Mead, and his newest book is Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. And Michael, there's a, you bring in lots of wonderful folk tales and stories within this book, and I'm just stimulated and excited by each one because they just give me another view, another view. And one of them is called the 60 Canyon Abandonment. <laughs> so it help us understand what is that folktale? So in the, the name of the chapter, I think, is Turning Things Around. So I, I think we're in the turning things around moment. It's an extended moment. We can't keep going down collectively down the path we're going. We have to turn things around. And so I found this story— Because uh, we'll, we're heading over the cliff. Exactly. Yeah. You know, whether you're looking at, you know, the use of oil and, and nature or over the cliff with the loss of integrity and culture. Yes. And so I found this story to, from Japan. There's more than one version. But anyway, in this case, uh, the 60 canyons didn't mean that there were 60 canyons. It meant that when you turned 60, you had to walk out into the canyons and abandon your life and die in the canyons. And the um, the realm was being ruled by a warlord, and so the people came to think the only things that were important were production and the next war. And the people, as I got, got older, weren't as productive or inclined to war, and so they had to leave. And so then there's one man, in this case, turns 60, tells his son and daughter who live with him, they're like a grown son and daughter because he's older, and that he's going to go. And they said, well, we don't want you to go alone. We're going with you. So they all head out on the trails to abandonment. And, uh, and then the son and daughter notice he's taking the tips of evergreen trees and throw, throwing the tips behind them. And they said, oh, we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to mark the path back. And after we leave, you're going to go back. And he said, no, 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 I've agreed to this. 
and my life is close to being over anyway. If I die, it's not the greatest loss, but you're young. And to not have your lives become fulfilled would be a tremendous loss. And so I'm marking the path so you don't get lost. So this is the turning point. They have stopped and they're having a discussion about being abandoned and being lost. And the elders and the youth actually both suffer that in culture. And they have a moment of realization. The Greek word is metanoia, a deep turning back towards truth. And so they said, well, we can't abandon you. And he says, I don't want to abandon you. So they all go back together. And now they're back in the culture, in the village, living, simple place, but he can't be seen because he's become an outlaw, which is, and I talk in that chapter about how elders are outlaws or they're serving a greater law than the common law. And often the common law isn't serving the common good. And so sometimes people, you know, you want to have a culture of law, law, as they say, but you want to have a culture of wise laws, and this one wasn't wise. Now he's living under the house, and they— So he's hiding out. He's hiding out, but deeper down. Deeper he's down. living below the village, as if he's in touch with deeper roots and deeper understanding. He's literally in the place of understanding everything everyone. And <laughs> Standing under, yeah. understanding, yeah. yes. And that's what the elders are. And so then the, the ruler gives all these things everybody has to do or else their taxes are going up or whatever it is. And they're all mythological things, quite complicated in the book. They're impossible Impossible tasks. tasks. Yes. And then I say we're living in the time of impossible tasks and we have to tap into the deep understanding of the human soul, one image of which is the wise elder, not the older. He's become the elder now because he's kind of refusing to die in in a way that isn't meaningful and uh, but but as soon as the elders awaken they're naturally connected to the youth who are looking for the great dream and the imagination of the future so the son and daughter are coming back and saying well now they are requiring us to do this and no one knows how to do it and if we don't do it we all get you know sanctions and punishments and and then the old man under the house says well here's what you do and he shows them how to do it and this of course has to happen three times because it's a mythological story so then the ruler eventually says each time I do this you two are the only two that can figure this out and you're young how can you be so wise when you're young and they can't help it they have to tell the truth and they say well we're getting it from our father and the question is how old is he well he's over 60 well why isn't he abandoned and they say because we love him and we couldn't abandon him and the ruler begins to think about it and 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 how much wisdom there is in this one elder that they happen to have at that time and he, for some reason, says, okay, maybe this isn't the greatest law. And then eventually they get rid of that law and they replace it with the idea that you celebrate the elders because of their wisdom and deep understanding and connection to both nature and the sacred things in life. And so I call that turning things around. And I'm trying to say we're in that moment if we but, but see it where the youth and the elders working together can turn things around, that the combination of those two uh, is what creates wisdom. And Okay, and I'm thinking, all right, so the, the elder, he's an elder, not an older. Yes. An older doesn't necessarily, just because they've lived a long life, have wisdom. But that person who has tapped into that deep well of wisdom— Yeah is a true elder yeah. and becomes a mentor to these young people. Yeah. And it just reminds me that 
you state at some point that none of us really can be a mentor unless we have experienced being mentored ourselves. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a time, and I think you've mentioned this on previous programs, but it's such a beautiful story, where you were mentored as a very young fellow. I think, I don't know, maybe fifth grade. I don't remember what you, but you were in school and there was a young nun yeah. and she did a blessing of your soul. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it somehow, that might have been one of the early mentorings that you experienced. Yeah. So I'd love for you to okay. share a little yeah. bit yeah, of that. Yeah, that's in this book. Yes. And I, and I use a Native American story of an orphaned, a deaf or, orphan, deaf orphan, it's hard to say, um, who wakes who could up. Not hear and, someone who could And suddenly not hear. wakes up out of longing and then gets blessed by an elder. And then when I was carrying that story around, I was wondering, why am I carrying this story all the time? And then And then I realized that when I was about 10, I, I had entered this new school. The family moved, and um, and I, it was I was a puzzle to the people in the school because I had the highest grades and the worst behavior. <laughs> and so, so we used to get it was Catholic school. We get report cards, which include all the grades, including a grade for behavior. And so I had straight A's and. F for behavior. <laughs> and so if you, and then you were ranked the way you sat by your grades. And so the best seat was the one closest to the teacher. Uh, that would be the highest one. And the worst seat was the one way at the back. And I had been put in, way at the back because of behavior. And then the teacher came in and she said, well, we have a problem. The class, we have a problem. And our problem is that is Michael, who by his behavior gets the last seat by his grades, gets the first seat. And I've been told to punish him for the bad behavior. And she started to cry. And she said, I can't do it. I have three brothers, and I miss them so much. I live pretty isolated in the convent here, and I don't see my family. I miss my brothers who I love. And how could I uh, hurt him? It would be like hurting my brothers. And she just started crying. And then as she got further into this, she pulled her her whole habit off, the whole top part of the habit, and her hair was cut very short, and she said, here's how I live, with my hair, you know, removed, with no one to talk to, there's no one that gives me advice really in a meaningful way, and no one hears my pain, and I'm not about to cause pain to any of you students, and certainly, you know, not not to him, so we all have to do something now, and, and instead of punishing him, I want him to move from the back seat to the front seat, and I want everybody to support it because we want Michael to be a leader for the good, not for the bad. And so it was this weird moment. You know, I'm like 10 years old or whatever, and uh, and I don't understand it. But the seed of that yeah. was at least saying, I have a choice. I can go down this path of the bad boy uh, yeah. or I can be a leader for good. I mean, that's a powerful moment. And what made it powerful was her telling her own inner truth and bearing her soul and bearing her pain and crying out of deep compassion for Unheard her. Unheard of inside. in a Catholic school. I yes. mean, I know to have a yeah. nun take off her headdress and yeah. and cry, yeah. even a teacher crying and revealing yeah. the that genuine story, being authentic. Yeah, 
and out of compassion. And so, so then I have to move literally from the back and I go walk, have, have to walk past her to get to the seat. And I, re, and I realized later, I didn't understand that I felt something, but I didn't know what it was. And re, later I realized it was a blessing. I was being seen with those eyes and the full attention of someone else's soul that blesses. And that's the essence of mentoring, is to bless the soul, bless the giftedness of a younger person. Although age eventually doesn't have anything to do with it. Anybody can mentor the younger, can mentor the old. Yes, that it can actually, go both ways. Well, that's what the turnaround in the story is. The young one said, we're not going to abandon you. And that turns things around. And uh, so then... So, yeah, so then I carried this blessing without understanding it, and I was carrying this story about this orphan boy that was deaf in this tribe, and I finally realized the reason I'm carrying the story is because there's an orphan part of me that was the kid that was sitting at the back acting out for whatever number of reasons, and that he was seen by that teacher in in the most compassionate way, and now I need to see that in myself better. So psychologically, everybody has orphan parts that have been put away and basically abandoned because the family didn't want them or the community or the society didn't want them. And to grow a greater, deeper soul means to recover the orphans inside ourselves. And it takes a, t- it takes a while to really truly understand that. I mean, it's actually guiding our lives without you know, a rational Understanding, yeah. and I, I can just think in my own life, I was asked to, to be with a group and be a keynote speaker, and they they said, please talk about an, a turning point in your life. Yeah, and the oddest thing happened for me, and I found myself telling a story to this group of people I had never told before, and it was about myself when I was about ten years old. Hmm. And as I told this story, I realized that was the first time in my memory that that soul calling, that destiny of who I am came out of me spontaneously and courageously without any rational reason. So we may not know the wherewithals until much later, but these moments are turning points. And they're indelible in the soul, and they continue to live. When I tell that story or when I wrote it down, which is the first time I ever wrote it down for the book, um, I feel the blessing from that young, holy woman who was surpassing the, the whole credo around her because of her compassion and breaking all the rules the way the elder has to do in the story, along with the youth, to not to break the rules in rebellion, but to get to the greater laws, the laws of humanity and the laws, uh, the universal law of compassion and empathy. I'm here with Michael Mead, author of Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Michael Mead, storyteller and, and translator of mythology and the author of Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. His website, to know more about him and his podcast, his, uh, all of his activities and his many books, go to mosaicvoices.org, mosaicvoices.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Michael, I would love here's another myth. <laughs> oh, this book is so rich. So this is the myth of Ur, E-R. And it's it's all about the descent into the underworld. And in that whole descent, which is I just so lovely that you've pulled, I know it's a huge myth, but you've pulled the essence of the story that speaks so deeply to me uh, about that whole descent and and especially the part when he meets the goddess called Clotho. And uh, please help us understand a bit about this myth and what it means to us in our lives. So the background is descent to the soul rather than rising to the spirit. They're both important, but the descent to the soul is the thing that's missing now. I call this the lost story of Western imagination because it's, it's, it's been lost. People don't know it. And so it starts with the legend of a soldier who's in a battle, and and he appears to die, and he's under a pile of corpses, but he doesn't die. And instead, he's taken into the underworld. And in the underworld, he joins a group of people who are actually souls on their way to being born. And so he travels through the underworld, the territory of the unconscious, if you want to think about it psychologically. And two amazing things happen, two core things. One is they wind up at the center of the cosmos and they see the spinning of the cosmos. Uh, And so why that's important, it says each of our souls before they came to life were at the center of the cosmos. So the individual soul is connected to the center of the cosmos or the soul of the world, the universe, whatever. So that's one part. And then the second part is right after they're at the center of the cosmos, they come upon the three sisters of fate. And the three sisters of fate are the ones who are occasionally giving the, the cosmos to spin. And, so, and then they're the ones who give each of the souls their individual thread. And Clotho takes, gives them the thread and then pulls it and gives it a twist so that each person's life has a twist in it which makes their life unique and it's called a twist of fate and then the idea of a person for a person is to live deeply enough to find that twist of fate and as soon as a person becomes aware of the the unique twist in their life now they're aimed at their destiny fate leads to destiny so he goes through the whole thing and then the souls each have their thread and then they enter the plain of oblivion, which leads to the river Lethe, uh, which is called the river of forgetfulness. And that's important because the uh, mythological idea is each of our souls were at the center of the cosmos at one, before we were born. Each of our souls has a thread, which is our fate and our destiny. I call it the genius thread. Um, And then each of us forgot because we drank the waters of forgetfulness and then we were born. In the story it says, and then the souls after they drank the forgetfulness so that none of them could remember what they had seen and what their individual thread was except for Ur, who is like Earth, who represents everyone. And he was told not to drink the water. So then 
The souls are all born like comets, like shooting stars onto the earth, but they've forgotten why they came, except for Ur, who wakes up on his own funeral pyre with the knowledge that each soul has comes from the center of the cosmos and each is has its own thread of fate and of destiny and he becomes the person delivering the message to the common world that this is where we come from and we're all aimed at something meaningful and then the story has been turned into a discussion of philosophy and I call it the lost story because it's really the story of the origin of the soul and the river Lethe is the river of forgetfulness and the Greek word for um, truth is Alethea not to forget. Not to forget. So why is it important for us if we take this story and say we each have this thread of genius that we're born with, that we're, we're not empty vessels coming in, yes. that, that there's more to it than that, that yep. there's a depth to us. Why is it important for us to tune into that and how can we do that? So the two parts, the way they work for me, is the idea that we're at the center of the cosmos before we were born. You could translate that into Carl Jung's deep self. We're at the center of origin of life, and we still carry that inside us. We've just forgotten it. So that's one thing. When everything gets scary and shaky and sad and tragic, remember that we're connected to the very source of life, the origins and the center of the cosmos or the deep self because that steadies the psyche and makes us you know, less afraid. And then that each of us is pulling a thread, again, I call it the genius thread, into the world. Once we awaken to it, that thread is our connection to our giftedness, that the idea being the ancient idea that each soul comes into the world with gifts to give to the world. But you say... Once we are awakened to it, now that's that's the like the fulcrum right there. How do we awaken to that? So, the two two ways of talking about it is uh, the old idea of an initiation or rites of passage. Each girl, each boy, wouldn't just go to high school. They would go to low school. They would go to deep school. They would go to soul school, and they would go down and find out who they were in the depth of themselves. And each person, after being born on earth, having forgotten why they came, is supposed to re- be reborn psychologically and, and imaginatively to who they are at the core of themselves. Huge issue in the Western world. The argument, are we empty? Do we have souls or are we just empty vessels? Okay, all right. What I'm getting, okay, what I'm getting, and I'm getting this from your book too, here. So at this point, this needing the initiation, it's like we approach it, coming to the initiation, as a seed. And we know seeds, let's say the walnut, it's a very hard, it's a seed. Yeah. It's a very hard seed. Yeah. So the seed has to be broken open yes. in order to germinate and to then grow. Yes. So it's that breaking open. Somehow that's sometimes painful. It's, well, birth is painful, they, the poets used to say. Uh, to be born here, someone had to go through labor pains for us to get here. The second time we go through the labor pains and give birth to ourselves from ourselves. One of the meanings of initiation is revealing oneself to oneself. And so, yeah, the shell has to crack. 
One way psychologically to imagine that shell is the shell of narcissism that has to crack. And we can see right now in its culture how important that would be if those who are in power could crack the shell of their own narcissism, they might feel the natural empathy for the suffering of other people. But anyway, that's their business. Ours is to crack our own shell. And so then once a person realizes that we're not empty inside, we have pain in there, but we have hidden gifts in there, like we were talking about with the golden repair, and the satisfaction of one's life and one's soul comes from giving one's gifts to the world. And right now the world, whether it's the world of nature or the world of culture, is just, you know, everywhere you look, there's damage, there's healing that's needed, there are answers and solutions that are needed, whether it's to poverty and, and oppression or it's to the pollution of rivers and the pollution of forests. And each person is born with their thread, which would allow them to give something in a, of a healing nature or a growing nature. Um, some people are born to be scientists and some people are born to be death doulas and some people are born to figure out how to take pollution out of rivers. And so what I'm saying, if everybody just could live their thread, then one day a person po- following their thread winds up at an intersection where something is de- desperately needed. They don't have to be heroic. They don't have to claim they're going to save everybody. They just have to bring the truth of their own life and the gifts of their own soul. And they're in an intersection where that can have a meaningful weight in shifting the world from destruction to creation, from chaos to imagination. And we're always at that point now. We're living in that, the Greeks called it the kairos, the place of collapse and renewal. That's what we're going through. And our best chance is to go through life, allowing ourselves to be pulled by our own thread. And someone once stood up in the audience and, you know, and said, well, 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 um, how can you prove that that's going to help? And I said, well, here's the way I'm looking at it. If I follow the thread of my life and the world becomes more creative and I can have a little contribution to that, then I will die, you know, with an unburdened soul. And if I'm following the thread of my life and everything keeps falling apart and that's the way it goes, but I've followed my thread, I can die with an unburdened soul. Either way, the thing to do in life as I was saying about the Hamlet, it's not, you know, it's not the simple question of living and dying, to be myself or else to not be. Our, we're only ourselves when we're living our lives. And that's why I end the book with living in truth, the individual truth, truth and the idea that that could generate a collective initiation without anybody having to be a big heroic figure. And when you don't have that idea that heroically we're going to save the world, you start to see the importance of each individual person because they each can bring some healing in their own unique way. And even the West has a story about that. It just has been forgotten. Wow, yeah, this is a mouthful. And you're saying that it is enough for us to act out through our own gifts and contribute those and know that that is enough and it will be used in good ways. Yeah. 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 Because often people think that the giftedness has to be this big, bright thing. And then you find out that some people have the gift of empathy and they are essential to everybody else feeling connected to their own story. Thank you so much for being with us today, Michael. I've been speaking with Michael Mead. He's a storyteller of scholar of mythology, and the author of Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. And to know more about his work, you can go to his website, mosaic 
mosaicvoices.org, mosaicvoices.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3652. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.